This is an ABC podcast. How much healthier could Australians be? Half the population have chronic health problems, but most are preventable. It's time to reset. Hello, it's all in the mind on RN. I'm Lynne Malcolm. With me today is British TV journalist Dr Michael Mosley. He's best known for his TV features on biology and medicine. You may have seen his programs and books on the fast diet, fast exercise, the clever guts diet and the eight-week blood sugar diet. His new series called Reset draws together panels of experts and those with lived experience to discuss the crucial connection between the body and the mind. I'm very interested in the impact that things like health have on the mind and the brain and the other way around. It's become very clear, for example, that if you have something like obesity um, or you're very overweight, then the fat basically produces these signals, inflammatory signals, which in turn affect the brain. And this is true also of the gut, that the microbes in your gut, the microbiome, the one to two kilos of microbes that live down there can influence mood. And this is a whole kind of new area of science, which is what makes it unbelievably exciting. And at the same time, it seems sort of blindingly obvious that what you eat is likely to affect how you feel and vice versa. And yet science hasn't really addressed that until surprisingly recently. And I think that's part of the whole attraction for me is it brings together so many things that I'm passionately interested in. And they all link with everything else in most unexpected ways. And what is fabulous is there are so many great Australian researchers doing this stuff. Michael Mosley's series, Reset, is in three parts. Better bodies, better guts and better minds. So what has he found out about the state of people's mental health in Australia? Not great. And this is true around the world. In Australia, I think around uh, 20% of the population will experience some sort of episode of mental illness at some point in their lives. And that's a similar figure in the UK. And clearly... The youth of today are also experiencing it in ever higher levels that we're seeing certainly manifestation of mental health issues, whether it is depression, anxiety or otherwise. I think people are more willing to talk about it, which is great. But I also genuinely think that there is a kind of crisis pending. Indeed, not even pending. It's here amongst us now. Sarah, you were in your 20s when you first discovered that um, you had mental health issues. What does it actually sort of feel like to people who don't know what real depression feels like? It physically hurt. I had no energy, I had no motivation, I had no enthusiasm to do anything. I was in a a big hole that I couldn't get out of. I couldn't uh, comprehend things. Do you know what I mean? Like, it was just, it was really difficult. And so I... Like many people, I had, um, I think... Uh, anxiety disorder start in childhood and then by early puberty I'd manifested major depression, clinical depression that tracked right the way through my adolescence along with panic disorder. You know, when you have depression it feels like dementors have got you from Harry Potter and they've (laughs) sucked all the joy out of you. And it is really just the most horrible, horrible experience. And if you have found ways to help yourself then of course you want to be able to help others if you can. 
Felice and Sarah, participants in Michael Mosley's new series called Reset. The good stuff is that people are willing to get up and talk about it. The bad stuff is we still don't really kind of know what's going on. I think we have not exactly come to the end of the road with medication, but the limits are becoming blindingly clear. Another area that is very common is panic attacks. Yes. And I believe you've experienced panic attacks. I have, yes. Tell us what that feels like. Oh, it just feels like the worst thing in the world. This happened to me, I was making a film uh, called The Secret Life of the Brain. And as part of that, we thought we'd um, do a film about fear. And uh, the producer naturally said, well, what are you afraid of? And I said, confined spaces. So uh, she said, let's go caving. (laughs) So for some insane reason, I agreed this was a good idea. And then I got stuck on the ground and I completely freaked out. I utterly panicked. I was flooded with fear. It wasn't just then. I came out, it was fine. But later when I was in a sort of brain scanner doing another film, the same thing. I knew I was not at risk. I knew that I could get out any moment. But I felt this overwhelming sensation of fear, of panic. I knew exactly what was going on. The adrenaline was being released. My heart rate was going out. None of it helped. None of that made any difference at all. I just had to get out of that space. It's probably the first time I've experienced genuine panic. And uh, it brought home to me just what it feels like to be kind of standing in the street and then suddenly this terror washes over you. And it's how you can kind of deal with that. And I know all the techniques. I know the techniques about, you know, breathing. And they do help a bit, but they don't help a lot. And it does make you, as I said, very sympathetic towards people who experience it. Now, I do a series called Trust Me, I'm a Doctor, and we recently did a mental health special in which the whole episode was dedicated to mental health. And it was kind of interesting talking to psychiatrists about medication because some of them saying we're not using enough and other people saying we're using too much, that we're over-reliant on it. Sarah, I'm assuming you, you went to your GP, you saw a psychologist, and they put you on medication, is that Correct. Right? My brother died. My mother turned and said, you're not doing so well. Um, you need to go and do, have some help. And I refused medication all through my teens when I was sort of up and down myself. Um, but then I was so, okay, I need to just do something. So I did. I was on medication. And for the past 18 years, I've been up and down, on and off medication. I went off them to have my children, Mm -hmm. but then I just had to go back on them again. But my biggest problem with medication now is the withdrawal symptoms to come off them. But yeah, it was basically, oh, you're sad, here, take a pill. (laughs) (laughs) So as you've said, there's a range of different theories now about what affects people's mental health and what can help. But Usually the first port of call is a GP. Yeah. How good are GPs at identifying these problems and perhaps giving appropriate treatment? Uh, Hugely variable. Certainly the figures from the UK are that about one in five people who experiences something like a panic attack or anxieties or depression will actually get treatment. So it's uh, very undertreated. My wife is a GP. 
she sees a lot of people with sort of different levels who struggle with some other aspect of their life. Often they come in for some completely different reason and then she has to kind of almost pull it out of them. And this is quite difficult if you've got eight and a half minutes. And then how you deal with it in eight and a half minutes is another issue altogether. There are techniques like cognitive behavioural therapy, which um, can be effective. A lot of patients are reluctant to take antidepressants. And we know they take a couple of weeks to kick in. And they don't work in everyone. So that's kind of one of the challenges. And the other big challenge is almost no new ones have been brought forward. So the drug companies are kind of given up to some degree. Despite this being a massive market, because I believe that depression and anxiety are the biggest chronic areas of disease worldwide and projected to increase at a terrifying rate, the treatments are surprisingly ineffective. That's why I am at least encouraged by the fact there are other things to be looked at. Australian doctors prescribe more antidepressants than anyone else in the world, apparently, apart from Iceland, strangely. Why is this? I don't know. It's a bit of mystery. When we were doing the program, I did ask the experts on the panel why that was, and none of them could answer that. And as I said, there's kind of debate as to whether the Australians are prescribing too many or the others are prescribing too little. Now, Grant, do you think we overprescribe antidepressants or underprescribe them? I think... One of the questions is, are the right people getting them? So what the evidence tells us is that for people with mild depressive anxiety symptoms, there's really no point being on the antidepressants. They don't make much difference. And then at the same time, we know for people with severe depression, there's now very good evidence from many trials that it can really help them. And many of those people are not getting antidepressants that might help them. Keep in mind as well, there are many, many people out there in the community who get no help. They don't go to the GP, they don't get any health professional Mm. help. And so they're potentially people who could be helped. At the same time, GPs, you know, it's my own profession, but we're under time pressure and it's much easier to scribble down (laughs) a script. We don't have to scribble it. Now you hit the button on the computer than to... Um, help people with non-pharmacological approaches, get them involved seeing a psychologist or change their diet or exercising or all these other great things. So we're a bit underprepared and undertrained as GPs and we've got lots of work to do still. Okay. Dr Grant Blaschke from Beyond Blue. And the thing which I guess excites me most, particularly in the area of depression, is the emerging evidence that inflammation plays a big role in that. So it used to be it's all about dopamine, it's all about the chemicals, it's all about that, or it's all about psychoanalysis, it's all about understanding the motivations, what happened to you in childhood. And suddenly now we have a a third area to investigate, if you like, which is these inflammatory factors. And uh, there was some really interesting research coming out from Australia, but also from Oxford, looking at that, because it gives you a whole new way of getting into something which is a, a hugely difficult problem. So just explain what you mean. It's inflammation of the brain that you're talking about. Absolutely. So we have known for a little while now that 
um, if you get infection in another part of your body, then this leads to inflammation. And this is often associated with depression. So people thought that maybe this was a psychological, I feel sick, therefore I'm depressed. What is becoming increasingly clear is this inflammation, these antibodies, whatever it is that's inducing this inflammatory response, can actually cause inflammation in the brain, which has a direct effect on inducing depression. Uh, Professor Ed Bullmore, who is Professor of Psychiatry in Oxford, is a particular champion of this view and recently wrote a book called The Inflamed Mind, all about it, which is a very good read. And that is gaining increasing traction. And again, people thought, people who are overweight or obese, uh, they're depressed. And that's a frequent association. And the assumption was they're depressed because they're overweight and obese, but actually may well be it's the other way around. The fat, particularly visceral fat in the wrong places, sends out these inflammatory signals, uh, which in turn inflame the brain. And we know that the microbiome plays a role in it. And this is something where there's a brilliant institute called the Food for Mood Institute in Melbourne. And they've actually tried doing dietary interventions. And they did a brilliant study recently in which they looked at people who were either moderately or profoundly depressed on medication, and they put them on a Mediterranean diet. And that is broadly an anti-inflammatory diet. It's a diet which is rich in oily fish, nuts, vegetables. It's a super healthy diet. And about a third of them were able to come off their medication and effectively uh, significant reduction in symptoms compared to a very small number in those who were continuing standard uh, approach. And they, at the same time, were also collecting their poo samples so they could see changes in the microbiome. And so that suddenly makes you think, wow, that is interesting. And I know they're pursuing this research. And as I said, it's hugely heartening at a time when so many other therapies are failing. Sarah participated in the research conducted by the Food for Mood Institute in Melbourne, which studied the effect of dietary intervention on people who were depressed. She contacted Professor Felice Jacker, who led the study. I say to Felice in many emails that I, it saved my life. I said, God, they find new research in, in cancer or this, that and the other thing. They must be able to find something, new treatment for people with depression. So I just said, I Googled research, depression or whatever, and um, the study came up and I just went, oh, look, why not? And I did it and I was luckily I was accepted and it has changed my life. There are not many times, I have to admit, where I read a study and I want to jump up and down over the chair, but this was one of them. Definitely. So tell us about, we've hyped you up. Well, the study arose from many years of research that we'd done linking diet quality and depression risk. And we mm. know from studies that we've done all over the world that the quality of your diet is clearly linked to the risk of depression. But if we take someone with depression and help them to improve their diet, does it improve their depressive symptom? What we found was the diet seemed to be very efficacious in helping people to improve their depression. But I think what was notable was that the degree of dietary change correlated very closely with the degree of improvement right. so in the, depression. The, the more you ate well, the yeah, better you got. That's I exactly I mean, what right. sort of figures are you looking at compared to, say, medication or psychological? Oh, well, so most of the people were on some other form of treatment, yeah. whether it was psychotherapy, antidepressants, both, whatever. So this was what we call an adjunctive trial. And we found that in the dietary group, about 30% of those people went on to have full clinical remission right. compared to about 8% in the social support group. Now, if you think about the fact that with depression, it increases the risk for all those chronic 
physical diseases, heart disease and obesity and diabetes, and those conditions also increase depression risk. Yeah. So if you take a dietary approach, it's sort of... And this diet, blanket. which is broadly what you describe as a mid-training style diet, yeah. is also good for those other things anyway, exactly. isn't it? For heart disease, diabetes, you name it. Yeah, that's so exactly win -win. right. Yeah. Felice Jacker from the Food for Mood Institute. With All in the Mind on RN, I'm Lynne Malcolm, and with me is BBC TV presenter Dr Michael Mosley. His new series, Reset, explores the strong connection between the health of our bodies and our minds. We know that eating kind of junk food, very high carby, sugary foods are associated with low mood. They make you feel terrible. They may give you a short sugar high, but generally they make you feel awful. But you don't kind of know why. But now we have a mechanism, and one of the most plausible mechanisms is that if you kind of feed the good bacteria particularly with fibre and other things they like eating, then they will produce these things called short-chain fatty acids. And the short-chain fatty acids are anti-inflammatory. So these agents travel in the blood and they can cross the blood-brain barrier. They can get into the brain and they can reduce inflammation there. That seems to be the most plausible mechanism at the moment. That's what's being investigated. I know another group in Oxford who are absolutely looking at this, the link between the biome and psychosis, schizophrenia, even things like autism. Surprisingly enough, there's a group in Israel looking at fecal transplants for the treatment of autism. And that sounds like loony, loony stuff. And yet this is a really good group. And this is really good science. And so suddenly you have an, a way of approaching a subject which previously was very difficult to see anything new and fresh. And suddenly you start going, ooh, that's interesting. Now, I suspect it will bang up against limitations, but it does at least offer the possibility of change. One of the questions it raises is what comes first? Is it the gut influencing the brain or yep. the brain influencing the gut? Oh, you know, with absolute certainty, it's both, isn't it? There's, a, there's this vagus nerve, which is a super high, fast, broadband system. And there are, my favourite statistic about the gut is that there is the second brain down there, known as the enteric system. And there are as many brain cells down in your gut as there are in the head of a cat. And that's kind of, I read a book called Clever Guts, and that was because I think my gut's pretty clever. Uh, <laughs> and uh, the two communicate with each other at high speed all the time. And we know that the microbes in your gut are also able to hack into this system, rather like the kind of Russians hack into <laughs> things. And they can send messages to the brain. They can alter mood, possibly. And we know, again, from animal studies, very, very convincing animal studies, that if you change the microbiome, that will influence the mood, the behaviour of the rats, but also the behaviour will alter the biome. So the two kind of go together. One of the key themes in this series is reset. So it's, it's self-improvement. Yes. And many of the conclusions that you come to about methods of self-improvement of our health involve people making real changes, changes of habit and behaviour, and they require willpower. Mm. Um, I would dispute that, you see, because I think willpower is grossly overrated. I think that if you're faced 
with a short term, it's kind of like the monkey brain. That if the choice is basically between going for a run in the hope that this will benefit you in 20 years time by reducing your dementia risk or lying on the sofa eating chocolates and watching the television, unfortunately, most people are going to opt for the latter. So I think it's all about actually um, creating circumstances in which it is easier to be good than not to be. So just to take an example, I would suggest that you buy a bicycle. I would suggest I live at the top of a steep hill. I have a personal rule, which is that I always cycle. The shops are about a mile away. I always cycle. I've um, asked my wife never to pick me up from the station because that way I will always cycle. I get back in the evening. I don't want to do it, but there's no other way of getting home. And when it comes to things like sticking to a diet, I do believe that rapid weight loss is the way to go. I've just written a book all about it called The Fast 800, and that's based on three or four huge randomized controlled trials, which have shown that rapid weight loss leads to much more success in the short, the medium, and the long term, which is not what you would predict. But psychologically, it makes sense because you feel hugely motivated because you see the weight loss going off. You kind of think that means it's all going to come on again, but that is absolutely not what happens. And I've spoken to countless weight loss specialists about this, and they say the thing that predicts success at 10 years is the weight you lose in the first month. That is the best predictor we have, and they know this from long-term studies. So you need immediate motivation. You have to change what you eat, and one way to do that is you change that while you are uh, fasting, or what I call fasting, basically cutting back your calories. I can say to you, and everyone has been saying for 40 years, eat more vegetables, but it makes no difference at all because people don't do it. But if you basically give them the choice of eating nothing or eating vegetables, they will eat vegetables and they will then start finding new ways to cook vegetables. They will get more interested in vegetables and suddenly they will discover they quite like vegetables. It's that sort of thing. You need some willpower, but the other thing you need to do, for example, if you want to lose weight is clear out the cupboards. Because if you see the thing, you'll eat the thing. We know, again, from numerous studies, that if you leave sugary treats out, people eat them. And even just putting them in the cupboard will reduce consumption by about 50%. Even better is get them out of the house. So willpower is often about, as I said, creating circumstances which make it possible to be good. So what is the difference between those who are able to find those perhaps intrinsic mm. motivators and those who just struggle so much to make changes both mentally and physically? I think um, often it goes back to childhood and even beyond that in the sense that we know the microbiome, for example, the gut bacteria, which have a powerful influence on your appetite, on your risk of obesity and on your mental state. They're inherited from your mum. And literally from her, because as you come down the birth canal, you swallow her poop. And that's kind of what seeds the microbiome. Then whether you're breastfed or not, that has a serious impact on your microbiome and therefore on your lifelong risk of obesity and also your risk of developing all sorts of immune diseases. So at every step, if you, are in a, you come from a deprived background, you're getting negative reinforcement. Maybe your mother is hugely overweight. Maybe she has type 2 diabetes. Also, it's true of your father. That if your father is overweight, 
then we know that affects the sperm quality. So that is the kind of the beginning of things, and that's why it's so important the first thousand days of your existence. And then what happens is that the foods you eat or encouraged to eat in childhood, again, they affect your long-term health, your long-term tastes, the people you hang around with. And it's kind of depressing because so many things they have. A, you know, the Jesuits famously had a saying, give me a child until the age of seven and he is mine for life. And unfortunately, that is also true. A lot of good patterns get laid down early on, literally, which is why early intervention is so important, particularly hard to reach communities. So in Amsterdam, which is the only city on earth which has managed to reverse childhood obesity, particularly in the hard to reach Immigrant communities, they've done it, at least in part, by sending people out in the community to help mothers with breastfeeding, with eating foods which are tasty, which are healthier. But they've also banned advertising from junk food companies, from Coca-Cola and the likes. And you're not allowed to bring junk food into the school. You're not allowed to bring anything other than water or milk in. And the uh, fast food restaurants are not allowed to sell kids anything other than an apple. It's like smoking. On the whole, we don't blame smokers anymore. We don't say you're an awful person and we find other ways. We tax it. We make it socially unacceptable. We uh, stop the people advertising us. We kind of tell people it's going to kill them. So I'm a huge fan of a sort of multiple approach to these things. It's quite early in the year and people probably still have ideas about New Year's resolutions yes. and how to change. Are there some simple key ways to reset your mind. Yes. The best thing about New Year's resolutions is to have very specific goals. So the more specific, the better. So just going, I want to lose a bit of weight is not very helpful. What you need to be able to say is, I want to lose five kilos because I have raised blood pressure or because I know I'm a pre-diabetic or I know I'm a diabetic and I want to do it by March and I'm going to go and do these steps. I'm going to tell my friends all about it. I'm going to write it on post-it notes and stick it all over the place. And I'm going to have a plan. And I'm going to stick to the plan. And again, the more people you can involve in the process, the more likely you are to be successful because we are social creatures. And um, again, when it comes to mental health, maybe you feel terrible, you're feeling depressed. You need to kind of bring your friends on board. You need to talk about it, but you need to have a plan. But also having a goal in mind, something which inspires you, which makes you think, yes, that's why I'm doing this thing, because I can change my life. I can feel better about myself. I'm a lovable person. I can be loved. And uh, I don't believe that people can do it alone. I think they need help. And that doesn't necessarily mean professional help. And even sort of reaching out to online communities can be helpful because there are a lot of lovely people out there who actually want to help you. The thing that has really warmed my heart is that particularly people who've been through it, they are a kind of beacon of hope because they also know that just offering, you know, useless advice along the lines of pull yourself together or just eat less, do more exercise, or it's all in the mind, <laughs> is not helpful. That actually what you need is very specific guidance. Michael Mosley has produced and presented many TV programs and books on science, health and self-improvement over the decades. What effect has his work had on his own well-being? Personally, it's been a huge journey and huge transformation. So seven years ago, I discovered that I was a type 2 diabetic. 
like my dad. My dad developed it in his 50s and was dead by 74 from complications. So I had no idea until I had this random blood test. And then I embraced change. I lost 10 kilos. My blood sugars went to normal. I started to build much more activity into my life. My mood improved. I took up mindfulness. I took up dancing. We went off doing, uh, which was lovely, doing a bit of ballroom dancing, a bit of Latin. And I have tried to be more open because I'm actually naturally quite introverted. So I find it quite difficult sometimes communicating. Funnily enough, the whole process of doing this has encouraged me, hey, to become out there and do public speaking, which uh, I I do broadcasting. But prior to that, I've never really uh, wanted to go out and engage with the, the public. It was all about going one way, whereas now I actually like talking to people and people come up to talk to me about all the stuff that's going on in their lives. And I like to share what I know and I like to hear their experiences. So that's kind of been a big thing. I am utterly different to how I was back then. And uh, my only sadness is that if I'd known the things I know now, I could probably have saved my dad's life. And that's kind of why I wanted to do Reset. The three-part series Reset with Dr. Michael Mosley can be found on SBS On Demand from March the 4th. Thanks to producer Diane Dean and sound engineer Andre Shabanov. I'm Lynn Malcolm. Do join me again next time. Bye for now. been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.